Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to our first episode of Policy Forum Pod for 2022. I'm Sharon Bessel and I'm here with my wonderful pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, and we are very excited to be back in 2022. And while the world is looking as polarised and chaotic as, and challenging as it was in 2021, we're feeling very optimistic about bringing you research-informed discussion about how we can make good change in the world. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And as I said, I'm here with the fabulous Anna Greta Hunter. Anna Greta, would you like to tell our 2022 listeners a little bit about you? Hi, Sharon. It's so lovely to be back with you on the pod. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm a physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. So it's really great to be back with you again, Sharon. It is so great, Anna Greta. I have missed you over the summer, even though we have been in communication with one another. And I am also very excited at the moment because we will actually be welcoming students back onto campus for the start of the academic year at the Crawford School of Public Policy and across the ANU. And that is a big moment for us. And hopefully we stay on campus for the whole year. And if anyone out there is interested in studying with us, please do check out our degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. We offer a whole range of very exciting programs, both online and, as I said, face-to-face. Yay! Policy Forum Pod is produced here at the Crawford School by policyforum.net. Now, Anna Greta, what did you get up to over the summer? Well, Sharon, I think starting with the, the perhaps the, the advantages that, that no one in my family has been sick, and I know so many people who are listening will have had friends, family or themselves who unfortunately contracted the coronavirus during that wave that began at the end of last year. And so I feel so, so lucky to have had a week or two sitting still, able to reflect without a disaster in sight, at least at least not locally. Um, and so so I, I feel like we've had the first holiday that may have been relaxing in quite some time. I'm quite refreshed and very much looking forward to 2022. How about you? How was your break? Much like yours, I too am feeling very, very grateful and very, very lucky that neither I nor my family got sick. Um, we actually managed to to travel to Melbourne to see family members that we hadn't seen for well over 18 months. And I got to do just a little bit of field work in Tasmania and to catch up with, with people there. So for me, it was a good summer and I'm conscious that it wasn't for everyone, but I'm hoping that 2022 is beginning to look better for, for our listeners and for people across this country and across the globe. So do we have a sense about what sorts of things we might talk about on Policy Forum this year? Have we, have we done some planning? I know we've been talking a lot. What sort of things have been across your plate um, and what sort of issues are you hoping we might address this year, Sharon? Well, I'm thinking that we might have an exciting range of topics that we can address this year. And I'm thinking that we should have an overarching theme of exploring policies to create a better future where care is valued. Mm -hmm. And I think we should continue with our hashtag value caring, Anna Greta. 
I, I think if the world ever needed to value caring, now is the time. And we really need to think about how we can begin to resolve some of the really deep challenges that this country, that the globe is is facing. And I genuinely believe we can only do that if we put care, care for one another, care for people, care for our planet and environment at the centre of all we do. What's your thinking? Uh, I'm going to follow on from that, that valuing care remains an extraordinary tool, I find, when I'm thinking about complex problems, problems in healthcare, problems in climate change, problems in the environment, problems in the politics that we see in front of us today, that using a lens of caring, how we can care for ourselves, how we can care for each other, and how can we can care for the planet and the places that we live, uh, is an extraordinarily powerful framework for, for seeing a better future. So I, I know that that's going to be our dominant narrative narrative through this year. I'm I'm beginning to think about the future of democracy. I know we have an election on the horizon and, and we will no doubt touch from time to time on the issues that might be coming up and become relevant in that federal election here in Australia this year. But I think more broadly as a global issue, the future of, of democracy and the way we participate in the decision-making that affects our lives day-to-day um, is a really interesting topic and, and now would be a great time to discuss that. So I'm hoping that comes up as a theme. I'd also like to talk about the environment and you'll, you know that climate change is something that does tend to come up in conversations with me on a regular basis. And the way in which we think about health and wellbeing, I think, again, themes that we've touched on the last few years and that I know will continue through this year. And for you? Yeah, I agree entirely that, that they're topics that we we should be exploring and it would be fantastic to explore in depth. You know, maybe as we're thinking about democracy, we can also think about some issues around globalisation and mm-hmm. what globalisation has meant for democracy, for the rise of populism, for the way people see the world. And of course, I think we have to keep climate change in conversations around climate emergency at the centre of, of any thinking about the future. No one will be surprised to hear me say I'd also like us to, to think about how we can address poverty, how we can address inequality, particularly in the wake of COVID-19, where we've seen a, a, a turnaround globally um, in, in, in achievements that had happened over the two decades prior. So, yeah, poverty and inequality is something that, that I'd like to see us take on. But it would also be great to hear from our listeners about the kinds of things they would like to see us think about as we talk through how we can create a better future where caring is valued and how policy can be used to bring that about. Absolutely. But Anna Greta, we've got a pretty exciting start to the year. Would you like to talk us through what it is we're going to be talking about today? Well, I think we're going to start by weaving a few of the themes that we've just touched on together. We've entered a federal election year, a topic that we're go- I know we're going to touch on over 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 the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months. The election day tradition in Australia is one that we're all familiar with. You go to the polling place on a Saturday, stand in line, get your obligatory democracy sausage on the way out, but not everybody gets to vote. The voting age in Australia is currently set at 18 years, but the Australian Capital Territory is thinking about changing this and letting young people have their say in election time. The Territory Government's currently considering a bill that would lower the voting age to 16, at least for the Territory election. 30 academics from across Australia and internationally, including my co-host Sharon Bessel and our two guests today, have made a submission to the Territory Inquiry to the Bill, supporting this proposed new legislation. So we're delighted and excited to welcome them onto the show today to talk about that proposal, the rights of children and young people and the future of Australian democracy. Sharon, can you tell us a little bit more about the guests that we have on today? I would love to introduce these two guests, Anna Greta, two of my favourite scholars, I must say. We have Faith Gordon. Faith is Associate Professor at the Australian National University College of Law. Her work focuses on youth justice, media representations, children's rights, criminal law and digital technologies and media regulation. Faith is Director of the Interdisciplinary International Youth Justice Network, which she established in 2016, and she's also co-founder and co-moderator of the Australian and New Zealand Society of of Criminology's thematic group on children, young people and the criminal justice system. And Faith is also the author of Children, Young People and the Press in a Transitioning Society. Faith, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for the invite, Sharon, and the intro. 
We also have with us Professor Rob Watts. Rob is Professor of Social Policy at RMIT University. His current research includes work on developing a human rights culture and children, young people and politics, and asylum seekers. Rob is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Rob has published very widely in the area of youth studies, and one of my favourites is the book The Precarious Generation, a political economy of young people co-authored with Judith Besant and Rhys Farthing. Rob, along with Professor Judith Besant, was the lead author of the submission into the ACT inquiry that we'll be talking about today, and we'll put a link to that submission in our notes for today's episode. Rob, so good to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you very much, Sharon. Great to be here. And so the first question for today's discussion, the best place to start is probably to ask both of you, why is lowering the voting age a good idea in your view? Who'd like to go first? Rob, Faith? Well, I think it's a really good idea to lower the voting age for a number of reasons. So firstly, Australia signed up to you know, a number of international law conventions, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And I think that it would be a really... Um, Align, it would align with those international rights conventions to extend participation rights and very these very basic citizenship rights to vote to um, 16 and 17 year olds in Australia. I hope this really becomes a national debate here and discussion and move towards lowering the age that's being proposed in the ACT. It would be really important to be having this um, happen on a national scale. I also think that it's more in it will bring things more in line with um, those states and territories that do have human rights frameworks. I think that it will strengthen um, young people's sense of um, having a voice and having a say and that key right to participate and be heard on all matters that concern them. I think that it would go some way to addressing the experiences of young people that they speak very often about in relation to age-based prejudice and discrimination. I think it would go one way to addressing some of that in our society. I also think another benefit of lowering the age is to overall strengthen our democracy in Australia. Young people very clearly have been taking leadership in many significant issues affecting Australia, such as climate action, we're seeing really inspiring leadership from young people in this space, yet they're not actually extended the right to have a say at the ballot box to elect people that you know can show leadership and have policies that align with um, what young people think. Um, and a lot of the decisions that are being made um, at present are going to affect young people for many years to come, this generation. So I think that um, extending uh, the voting right to that age bracket would be really important. That's a great place to start, Faith. So thank you so much for that, Rob. What What are your thoughts on why we should lower the voting age? Well, I guess I start with uh, two propositions. One, a sort of critical observation about the politics of participation, youth participation in particular. Um, my partner in crime, Judith Besant, and I are working on a book called "The Politics of Deception." which is an exploration of all of the many ways that governments in liberal democracies and other styles of government say they support the principle of youth participation, have very elaborate uh, accounts of why it's a good idea, and then singularly fail to deliver on anything looking like authentic youth participation. And it seems to me that if you think about the obstacles, uh, the institutional, the uh, if you like, the ideological objections or problems that people have with engaging with young people authentically, uh, we need to think through uh, in a context of, you know, quite, I think, well understood crisis of democracy now, what kinds of institutional innovations do we need to promote in order to start to push the, um, the envelope open a bit wider? And it seems to me that lowering the voting age, certainly in the first instance to 16, is a particularly good way of starting to push uh, harder against the current institutional uh, frustrations that uh, uh, thwart uh, effective participation by young people. In a more positive way, I'd say that the ACT has, over the last two decades, 
particularly once it introduced another innovation, multi-member um, electorate system, uh, has become a leader in uh, effective, well thought out, uh, uh, useful and uh, wide-ranging good policy. Uh, it's done a lot of interesting and good things, beginning with the fact that it was the first jurisdiction to introduce a, uh, an effective Bill of Rights, the you know the Human Rights Act of, of the ACT back in 2004. And uh, since then, it's developed, I think, a, a well-understood uh, reputation for being a bit of an innovator. And here we see again, uh, late last year, we find uh, that uh, some members of the Legislative Assembly have again gone uh, ahead of, uh, if you like, uh, current thought in... Um, other Australian states and the national territory and the national government to propose a quite uh, interesting uh, tweak of our uh, electoral system by, uh, with a proposal to lower the voting age to 16. So it seems to me here we see uh, the possibility of a, of a reformist government, uh, a, a, a minority government led by Andrew Barr in collaboration with Greens looking at a, a very important, interesting innovation, which would, as Faith has said, align better the uh, the electoral system that they have in the ACT with that original uh, Human Rights Act back in 2004. It simply extends the rights of citizenship to yet another uh, uh, slice, if you like, of, of the population under the age of 18. And I think that's a really important uh, and, uh, and encouraging sign, if you like, in a context where there's a few bit of gloom and doom around about the prospects of democracy at the moment. We sometimes assume that the voting age is somehow set in stone, you know, a, a rite of passage that comes with adulthood. But of course, that's not the case. In Australia, the age of majority was once 21 and it was lowered to 18 in 1973. Um, and in other countries, it's 16. Rob, I just wanted to pick up on, on that first point you made about the potential for this change pushing back against institutions that, that may appear a bit unresponsive or even moribund um, and and revitalising democracy. We're, we're now 50 years on from the last change to voting age in Australia. And Rob, what other factors make it time for another change now? Are we seeing you know, a particular coalition of factors in, in play that make this the right time? Well, I think... Uh... Uh, I like to say to my students that the greatest obstacle to change is the way things already are. Um, and so it's it's always a good time to, to, to go for change because you'll face the same uh, blockages and frustrations uh, of any proposal for change any old time you start the process. I'd like to pick up on the first thought, though, that uh, one of the standard ideas, I suppose, that uh, opponents of uh, the idea of lowering the voting age often reach for is that uh, in some fashion young people are uh, naturally, biologically, cognitively, psychologically um, immature, irrational, uh, incapable of performing the kinds of emotional and ethical and uh, rational judgments that are deemed to be appropriate for anyone getting the vote. Now, of course, that's we can go on about the the prejudice-based nature of that proposition. But it's more important, I think, to point out that any idea that there's an agreement in our community about when young people are to be treated as adults is a complete nonsense. If you look at all of the legal and regulatory provisions currently in place in Australia, um, everything from when do you pay taxes, when, can, when are you assumed to have criminal responsibility, when can you marry, when can you join the army, when can you uh, have a credit card, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there is a complete chaos out there. There is no agreement at all whatsoever at this point in our community in terms of actual practices and policies and legal frameworks as to when a young person becomes an adult. And that seems to be uh, uh, an important clue, I think, to, to the way we do and don't recognise uh, young people uh, in terms of who they actually are, what they're actually capable of and what they're actually interested in. And that in, that is both an institutional chaos and an ideological prejudice, it seems to me, which uh, has long frustrated young people who are more than ready and willing and able to step up and do things. Uh, if you're old enough at 17 to defend the country, you surely should be able to vote for a, for a government, for example. So it seems to me that there's a, a very important set of uh, um, explorations to be had here with our community to enter into dialogue with our, our broader community uh, about what we think, about when we think young people are fit to assume uh, the, the status, the full status of citizenship. 
Faith, I, I wanted to bring you in here and 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 pick up on this issue of of the right age, if you like, for young people to vote. Um, Sixteen is currently the age that's that's on the table. Um, it could be seventeen, it could be fifteen, or, or younger. And drawing on on your extensive research with young people, Faith, what do you think is is the right age? Is sixteen about right, or, or should we have be having a conversation uh, about perhaps an, an even younger voting age? It's a really great question, Sharon. And in relation to other international jurisdictions, we've certainly seen um, other countries reducing the age generally to 16 or 17. So I think 16 being on the table would certainly align with many, many other countries um, around the world. And, you know, we've seen that, you know, in Germany and and Switzerland, Austria, Cuba, the, the list goes on and on in relation to um, the age that's been set. Scotland very recently there lowered the age to 16 for local and national um, you know, parliament elections. So I think the the international norm has has generally been, you know, 16. Um, to pick up on a point that that Rob raised there about, you know, prejudice, I, I think it is important that we that we acknowledge this point um, about uh, you know the stereotypes that exist in relation to to young people and actually how those are formed and who feeds into those um, prejudices um, and in the research that I conducted in Northern Ireland um, you know the median politicians had really and other um, kind of what the literature would refer to as moral entrepreneurs had certainly fed into this discourse that, you know, young people, um, you know, I think one of the very prominent, uh, you know, quotes in the media was, you know, there's more uh, politics in a box of cornflakes than a young person. So young people are being faced with uh, or presented with this, uh, you know, discourse about them and about their decision making from, you know, quite key leaders in, in communities. And we've seen this in Australia very, very uh, starkly in relation to climate action, where the prime minister has told, you know, children and young people to, to get back into school. Um, and, uh, you know, where, you know, we are seeing them, you know, in a very inspiring light, taking leadership on really significant issues um, that are facing our society today. And we're, we're seeing even this week, um, you know, bushfires and WA and um, all of the extensive uh, damage um, that that those are doing in communities. So I think we we do need to um, you know address that that prejudice, and it goes really to the very heart of how young people are positioned by adults in our society. Um, in relation to experience of working with young people um, over you know over the last decade or or more, really. Um, through research and youth work experience, um, you know, young people show leadership and um, and politics in many, many different ways in relation to, to many, many different issues. A point that they consistently raise is that they want to have their say on all issues, uh, not just be pigeonholed into having a say on what's known as youth-related issues. So young people had, in the research that I've conducted um, for my PhD in postdoc studies had you know emphasized that they have opinions on a wide range of issues and typically what they find is that adults will perhaps you know put the emphasis on what's you know inverted commas youth related issues so extending the voting age to them would give them a say on you know policies in all realms um uh, you know, of uh, policy and decision making, which I think is really important for young people and something that they have highlighted definitely in the research that I've conducted. Um, I think in relation to the voting age, it would be really interesting to hear from young people on this in Australia and to get, um, you know, a sense from them as to what age they would like to, um, you know, to have a say. Um, And we know, having worked with, with young people, that they often say that they don't have the opportunities or they're not afforded opportunities to have a say on matters that concern them. But I think it would be really um, good and positive to hear from young people, perhaps under 16, about what they think about, um, 
you know, an age uh, that they would like to, t- to have a say and vote um, in, the, in mainstream politics? That's a really great question, Faith, and I think you've just painted a, a compelling argument for why we should engage young people in voting at a younger age. So what do we know about what 16 and 17-year-olds think about the proposal to lower the vote, voting age? Rob, have you got any insights that you could share with us on, on what they're thinking? Well, I think the, uh, the evidence both from within Australia uh, and from other jurisdictions uh, internationally which have either embraced the, the proposition of lowering the voting age to 16 or at least considering it actively suggests that there is a bit of a, uh, a variety of views. I think there's, there's no doubt that uh, some uh, elements of uh, the, the, call them teenage population, are deeply disenchanted with the contemporary framework of electoral uh, politics, parliamentary governments and so on and that they're not all that excited. There are others who clearly indicate uh, a a deep interest, and uh, I'm currently part of a network that's being organised by a a guy called Scott Warren in the United States who's been a key figure in the American movement to lower the voting age to 16, and the, the sense we get from talking with young people in the United States in particular is that they're very, very... Uh, committed to the idea of uh, engaging in formal electoral politics in the United States at every level of government. And I think that's the um, the sense that I think there is uh, uh, quite a lot of momentum, certainly in some polities, for, for that uh, kind of uh, reform. So I think it's, you know, it, it, it's hard to generalise about all young people wanting this or that, but I think there's certainly, uh, there's a, a growing momentum. And I think that the, the uh, parallel development that Faith was talking about of uh, uh, extra-parliamentary uh, or movement politics, uh, particularly around key issues like uh, uh, global warming or uh, Black Lives Matter or, or issues of uh, sexual harassment and so on, indicate again that the, uh, there's a whole lot of other political, quite political forms of, uh, of intervention which are... Uh, 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 Indicating that you know, things are going to be changing, I think in the next uh, next decade or so, quite substantially. Can I just say that one of the things that struck me so vividly in 2018, 2019, particularly around the the rise of the uh, strike for climate movement globally, is the extraordinary leadership capacities which 14, 15, 16 year olds simply demonstrated. Uh, they demonstrated a mastery of uh, rhetoric of uh, political persuasiveness, of uh, emotional uh, and intellectual cut-through, which we haven't seen in that particular policy and political frame for decades and which we certainly see very little evidence of amongst the old, older uh, uh, formal uh, leadership groups uh, in so many polities around uh, the globe. Rob, I I agree entirely. One of the more exciting things that we've seen happen um, around action, around climate change, has been that leadership of young people. Um, And with that, the kind of the shifting of the frame towards thinking about climate change in terms of intergenerational justice and intergenerational equity, as well as um, planetary justice. So there, there is a lot more to say on this topic. We're going to take just a very quick break here, but stay with us, listeners, because we will be back with... Rob Watts and Faith Gordon in just a minute. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. 
We're here with Faith Gordon and Rob Watts talking about lowering the voting age to 16 years. Uh, Rob, before the break, we started to talk a little bit about some of the assumptions and and Faith was pointing out um, the prejudices that people sometimes hold around young people. Um, And Rob, you pointed out that young people are are already often deeply engaged in politics. But I wanted to just tease this out a little bit more. And opposition to lowering the voting age is often based on the assumption that young people are not capable of making informed decisions, not just in the political realm, but broadly across their lives. Um, And I I certainly, I work in, um, in the social studies of childhood. And one of the things that that, that my research and, and that body of research has shown me very powerfully is that young people are actors in their communities, that they, they have agency and that they engage proactively with a range of issues. But I'd really like to hear more from you about what your research has told you um, about the way in which young people engage in their communities, are able to make decisions um, and are able to be active citizens, if you like, um, even when they're not given the right to vote, as as is the case at the moment. So, Rob, could could I ask you to pick up on all of that and and to just share with us what your research has told you about young people's capacity? Well, let me let me take it in two parts. One is that uh, the uh, some of the explorations I've engaged in highlight the way that uh, these deeply held and they are frankly prejudicial. Uh, representations of young people uh, are very powerful. They're very hard to shift. And this is often the way, as we see with other social movements in the 20th and now 21st centuries, when you're talking about other kinds of people, that young people, teenagers in particular, have long been subjected to a a kind of uh, almost uh, beautifully orchestrated barrage of uh, uh, propositions about their deficiencies. Uh, And this, for me, always... uh, uh, was brought home when I started engaging with the literature on what is now referred to as the adolescent brain, which referred to uh, a very large body of work uh, basing uh, itself on functional magnetic resonance imaging technology, which drew, drew the dismal conclusion that uh, effectively there was something wrong with their brain, between, particularly between the ages of 16 and 25. Now, there's nothing apparently problematic with their brain before 16, but something happened at around 16 and afflicted them until they were 25, which meant they lacked all of the most elementary um, human, emotional and ethical and uh, good judgment capacities which we deem appropriate. And this seemed to me to be a monstrous misuse of uh, science uh, and it rested on a rock-solid, absolutely rock-solid sediment of uh, um, uh, prejudice. Uh, it's it's been subjected to to I think detailed critique by people like myself and Judith Besant and others, uh, but it p- keeps on persisting to this day. So that's the negative side. I think the posit- on the positive side again, uh, there's plenty of evidence suggesting that uh, uh, children and young people are well able to engage in sophisticated uh, intellectual and political analysis. I've sat in groups with 10 and 11-year-olds having quite sophisticated discussions about the policy obstacles to effective climate change, for example, a policy in Australia, for example. Uh, I remember three years ago uh, a 10-year-old insisting that he'd be allowed to go to the first of the big uh, strike for climate action rallies outside uh, Parliament House in uh, here in Melbourne. Um, and uh, the conversations that you have with uh, quite young people like that uh, clearly indicate that they're well-informed Way in a way that, you know, I have trouble remembering my period of life when I was a 10-year-old, but I am absolutely sure I had none of the the kind of access to information and uh, uh, and uh, 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 knowledge about uh, these complex matters that uh, the, the ten and eleven and twelve year olds now manifest, and certainly uh, working with the uh, the uh, country regional uh, groups that were involved in the in that first rally cycle in 2018, 2019, 12, 13, 14 year olds were engaging in incredibly sophisticated mobilisation processes, communication strategies using you know the, the various uh, digital platforms and so on. And when we were actually at that very first rally in uh, November ni- uh, 2018, uh, it was perfectly plain that uh, there was hardly an adult in sight and here they were running a very sophisticated political process. So I have no doubt whatsoever 
um, as uh, projects uh, that uh, Faith and I are involved in, also looking at climate activism here in Australia, indicate that young people are well and truly able, uh, well below 16, let it be added to, uh, who can, uh, that they have demonstrated their capacity to engage in a sophisticated way, in a quite mature way, in uh, complex political processes. You know, Rob, one of the, the most powerful experiences I've had as a researcher was sitting with a group of eight and nine-year-olds while they debated the solutions to the very high housing prices, to homelessness and to housing insecurity. And they did that in a phenomenally sophisticated way and in a way that canvassed all sides of the debates that we sometimes don't see from adults. So, you know, I think when we take the time to actually listen to children and young people, which we often don't as a society, we are easily convinced of that level of capacity that that you talk about um, and easily convinced of what children and young people are able to bring to debates. But but Faith, can I draw you in here? Would, Would you like to comment on your experience of these issues? Yes, thanks, Sharon. I would like to pick up on a point actually that Rob made about, um, you know, this perception of, you know, young people having deficiencies. I think that through the research that I've conducted over the years, it's quite clear that many young people actually internalise a lot of these, um, you know, adult constructed and maintained stereotypes about young people. And often I've heard from young people, um, you know, certain phrases that in many ways affect their confidence or belief that they, you know, can go forward with issues or form their own opinions and, and, you know, voice those opinions. I think that we need to provide young people with the spaces in order to do that. But we really need to challenge these very long held, maintained, sustained stereotypes that exist about young people. And, um, Young people, similar to what Rob said there that I have engaged with, you know, and I've worked with younger children um, as well. You know, we hold very young children in this country at the age of 10 criminally responsible. Um, You know, we frame and maintain them at the age of 10 as being, you know, criminally liable um, for their actions. Yet we're not extending the vote to them at a much older age, you know, of 16 um, so I think there's huge discrepancies um, in, you know, where we place, uh, you know, responsibility um, in relation to, you know, various different different aspects. Um, and I do think that a lot of it goes down to how we socially construct the period of youth um, and young people. As Rob has said, too, I have also experienced um you know, young people showing leadership, being able to form quite clear views and opinions about, um, you know, practices and policies and how policies actually operate and affect people on the ground. And I've seen this, um, you know, in, in the various different countries that, I, that I've worked in. I'd like to bring up an example, I guess, in, in relation to Australia and during COVID-19, you know, many youth workers, particularly in Aboriginal communities, have highlighted that young people showed extreme leadership in creating posters and information about, um, about uh, you know, in terms of washing your hands and about social distancing. So there are many, many examples where, you know, children and young people have showed and taken initiative in their own communities um, and I think that needs to be acknowledged, yet it goes to the very heart of how we view children and young people in our society when mainstream leaders and politicians, um, you know, verbally discount and as often quoted in the media, discount children and young people's views, actions and opinions. And we really need to, you know, challenge that in the mainstream politics. And we're not going to be overly successful in challenging that until we have, you know, better representation in the political um, sphere. And one extension of achieving that would be to have young people voting and having their say. One of the the, the sticking points um, around the issue of lowering uh, the voting age has been the issue of compulsory versus optional voting. 
While the ACT government could change the voting age, making voting optional for anyone can only be decided at the federal level. Um, Can I ask you each whether you think there are any drawbacks of making voting compulsory for 16 and 17-year-olds rather than making it optional at 16 and then compulsory at at 18. Uh, Rob, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, obviously it it would be a difficult call for the um, ACT Assembly to uh, take on the might of the Commonwealth on that one. So I think there's an element of pragmatism in just saying let's go with the uh, current national framework. Uh, In my own view, I've I've wrestled with this. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when I had sort of anechoid tendencies back in the late 60s and I refused to vote uh, myself as a late teenager. Uh, but uh, have changed my mind, I think, uh, in uh, recent times to align more with Judy Brett's account of the benefits of uh, the compulsory voting framework. I'm not going to uh, go have a fight and die in the ditch on this one, but uh, I'm not all that fussed myself about the question of compulsion. I would like to see the ACT Assembly give consideration to not fining young people for uh, not voting. But uh, again, that would that may well open up a can of worms that uh, overwhelm the process, which would be a pity if it uh, um, led to that effect. But I certainly don't have a, a huge uh, issue with the question of whether it's compulsory or not for myself. But uh, I, I can understand that other people might have a much more developed and um, uh, harder-edged view of that question. Faith, putting aside those very important practical issues, which it would be very difficult for the ACT Legislative Assembly to, to get around, um, do you do you uh, think that compulsory voting at the age of 16 is the best way to go or would you prefer to see um, voluntary voting and then a transition into compulsory voting? It's a really good question, Sharon, about compulsory voting. And, you know, obviously having, um, you know, voted before I moved to Australia in a different system, which wasn't compulsory um, and being very excited to get my vote. um, We know from the research that in many Western democracies that do not have compulsory voting, that there has been a real dip and a lowering in relation to um, you know voting turnout uh, rates, and you know in some research it shows that you know young people who have been very disillusioned with politics in certain um, countries, um, you know, are very you know their their voter uh, turnout rates are, are very low because perhaps people aren't standing that represent um, policies or don't relate to. Um, to young people in, in some way, um, and I think that's certainly you know in the the country that I'm from in Northern Ireland, that's certainly been the case. And research has showed that. But I think in relation to compulsory voting, it's you know it's it's a very healthy actual framework in that you know you're getting um, you're getting a, a view of a, you know the the entire um, community apart from people that that opt out and then obviously experience a fine or. Um, in relation to that so really that you know the outcome or the result that you're getting um you know is representative um so i think that there are pluses to having compulsory voting i think it's challenging to to make that distinction in relation to whether we should have a transition period for 16 to 18 and i think it would be interesting to hear from young people on that I also uh, would pick up on the point that Rob made, and it's you know it's quite clear that you know young people, um, you know, often they do not earn the same if they're working as adults, and that's been you know a long discussion and debate by um, you know those of us that that work with young people that we think that young people should be earning the same rate of pay as as adults in their jobs. Um, so I think that. Uh, no one should be economic, you know, face economic hardship through a fine. Um, so I think that uh, it's a really important discussion to have. I think, as Rob has said as well, um, you know, we it would be very unfortunate if we see um, this process stymied in any way. Um, on that point of, um, you know, fines, um, and you know, we we already know that um, many young people pay taxes from their jobs. So it just 
it doesn't seem equitable that they're not having a say in relation to how though that tax income you know to the government is being utilized and spent in relation to policies I think you've raised so many important issues there, um, not least the inconsistencies that we see um, across policies in Australia that relate to young people and the age at which young people are, are either held accountable um, on the one hand or denied certain rights on the other. Um, but I, I wanted to, to pick up on um, a conversation that we had last year that our listeners might remember when we spoke with Interfer Chowdhury about how young Australians are engaging with democracy and particularly through digital and informal channels. And Faith, I know you've done quite a bit of work around um, young people's use of technology, including issues of safety, but also engagement through digital technologies. What do you think might be the, the impact of young people voting and perhaps then engaging more proactively in politics, what do you think that impact might be on on democratic culture and civil culture in Australia, given that young people often have quite different ways of engaging? Research shows that, yes, young people definitely have different ways of engaging. And um, my research really has showed that young people will often create their own forms of media to challenge mainstream, um, whether that be mainstream representations or, you know, mainstream um, portrayals of certain issues. You know, we've seen um, many, many, um, you know, groups of young people come together or establish organisations or groups um, to create their own forms of media, um, to create their own um, groups, which, you know, we've seen that, um most recently in terms of the Black Lives Matter movements globally, um, as Rob mentioned earlier too, about climate action. So certainly young people um, are the leaders in being uh, the most innovative in relation to various different uses of forms of technology. I think it would really enliven and enrich our democracy um, if young people's uh, methods and means um, and also the passion that they have, um, whether that can impact and influence um, what I kind of refer to as sort of the mainstream, which young people often feel there are very few avenues or routes for them to actually permeate um, you know, mainstream uh, spheres. Um, either because of how they're met with, um, you know, as we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister's response to young people um, and climate action has really been discouraging um, and very dismissive of young people mobilising themselves um, to take political action and to challenge those um, in power about decisions that they're making. We've seen young people use an amazing array of tools, you know, such as strategic litigation. And we've seen that um, with the Sharma case um, and that action that uh, was taken against the, the Federal Minister for the Environment. So young people are really uh, using many, many tools um, in, in contemporary times. And that really shows, um, you know, how passionate they are about the issues, how dedicated they are. Um, and also, um, you know, their, uh, you know, the passion really to challenge uh, the more kind of mainstream um, and the technology side is very key because it reaches and it connects young people globally. A lot of these movements in the political space um, are really global. And of course, all of that interaction um, more globally um is a really great thing, actually, for local and national um, democracies as well. And as I mentioned earlier, we've seen um, on the ground young people really using technology during the COVID-19 um, pandemic um, to really highlight their experiences, to also to get the message through to politicians that, you know, funding and resources does need to be allocated to mental health. Um, and really challenging that the current policies are out of sync with what many social groups actually require and need on the ground in light of their experiences. Could I hop in there a little bit by pointing to, I think, what is actually a fundamental 
structural possibility uh, arising out of a basic conflict. On, I think faith is absolutely right. What we see now is an extraordinary flourishing of new styles of engagement, uh, creativity, uh, satire, uh, political commentary, music that's very politicised in all sorts of ways and so on. And young people, as I discover each year in my teaching process, are now used to spending 20 to 25 hours a week on average in what we'll call the social media realm. And that sits in a very odd way against what I discovered in my preparation for the next book on on young people and democratic participation to be a really deep theoretical and practical animus or antagonism to participation in the very core, uh, the very fabric of democracy as we've understood it in the past few hundred years. It's no secret that many of the great theorists of democracy in the last two centuries have been, (laughs) to put it mildly, uh, less than impressed by the power of ordinary people to engage politically. Um, uh, Richard Tuck wrote a wonderful book in 2016 talking about what he called the sleeping sovereign idea, uh, which highlights the role in uh, classical liberal theory of the notion that, yes, popular sovereignty is wonderful, but just don't let the people get ahead of themselves. They need to wake up once every so while to to choose a government and go straight back to sleep again. And we know the names, uh, the Schumpeters and more recently people like Jason Brennan and so on, who run a very powerful anti-participatory line as part of their understanding of what contemporary democracy uh, ought to look like or, or properly uh, or in ideal terms should look like. And here I think we have a, a classic structural contradiction that's going to be very fruitful in the coming uh, decades as young people who are so used now to engaging technologically with each other run up against an institutional and, again, a kind of intellectual or ideological animus that is absolutely antagonistic to any real notion of authentic citizen participation. We're not talking about young people now. We're talking about genuine commitments to citizenry participation. And uh, what we see in this country, I think, is plenty of evidence of why this is a particular way what we call the crisis of democracy now takes uh, one of its many forms. There's a deep antagonism to actually engaging with ordinary people, let alone listening to them uh, in this country. And there are many examples in other liberal democracies of that same problem. So I think this is going to be the interesting thing to watch out for in the in the coming decades as these young people come of age and uh, confront uh, institutional inertia or, or worse as they seek to engage and participate. So the three of you have really got me thinking about the way that we approach people under the age of 18. And as you pointed out in the submission, young people under the age of 18 are legally able to do a whole range of things, from giving consent to medical procedures, to enlisting in the Australian Defence Force, to getting a pilot's licence to fly planes, perhaps in South Australia only. On the flip side, as you both point out, many decisions that deeply affect the future of young people, and yet they're not able to have a say in those policy directions at the ballast box. And also of concern is the fact that young people as young as 10 can be considered criminally responsible for their actions. These inconsistencies are an issue. And it gets me wondering whether we could look at these inconsistencies more broadly. There are inconsistencies in Australia around how rights of children and young people are framed. So I'd actually last like to ask all three of you, including Sharon, do you think policymakers need to take a broader look at this issue? Sharon? Thanks, Anna Greta. It's very exciting to, to jump sides here and, um, and to give a view on this. Um, look, I think based on, on the research that I've done and the research of others, that there is actually a, an incredible consistency in Australia in the way we think about the rights of children and young people and about children and young people more broadly, uh, more broadly in policy. And I think that consistency is that we almost always fail to be child-centred. You know, if we think about most of the policies that we have that relate to children and young people, the starting point is what do adults want or what do adults think about this particular issue rather than flipping that around and saying how can we develop policies that are child-centred and that come from the standpoint of children and young people because we know when we adopt different standpoints the world looks very different and at the moment we're not seeing what the world looks like 
and we're not considering in our policy what the world looks like from the perspective of of children and young people. Um, So yes, I would most certainly like to see a change in the way we think about policies broadly um, as they relate to children and young people, but also beyond that. When we start to think about issues of intergenerational justice, of, of planetary health in the long term, it's critical that we include and we think about the younger citizens within our society. And I think there's there's often inconsistencies when we, when we think about participation and protection. And just over the past couple of days, I've had people contact me and say, well, if we let people vote, what else might we let them do? Anna Greta, as you've pointed out, young people are already able to do a whole range of things. And as Faith has pointed out, children as young as 10 in Australia are held criminally responsible. And I, I I'd stop uh, my my answer here by um, paraphrasing this Children and Young People's Commissioner in Scotland, Bruce Adams, who makes the point that from a children's rights perspective, we should always think about protecting children up and up until the age of, of 18 and ensuring that there is participation from birth. And I think if we adopted that kind of approach, we'd begin to think very differently and to have far better policy in this country. Faith, would you like to um, add your thoughts to that? I think uh, the quote that you have stated there, Sharon, uh, really does speak volumes really of the direction that I would really love to see us go, um, especially in Australia. I think that, um, you know, we need to be asking young people what they think and actually taking action on it, uh, but they need to be part of that process. I think constantly in society we speak to young people or speak for them um, without actually hearing um, from them themselves and not be directed by them um, and I think that one key um, aspect and it's a it, it's one segment of many things that need to change would be um, providing young people with the opportunity to vote, to make decisions about the leadership um, and the policies that those leaders represent. I think that in Australia more broadly, you know, the, the Australia has signed up to many different international conventions, yet there hasn't been the they haven't been um, embedded often in our domestic legislative frameworks here. And in order to really take these frameworks, particularly in the area of human rights, seriously, the starting point is to embed them um, in our um, in our legislation, in all policies, in all practices. Um, but we're consistently receiving a very, very poor scorecard in Australia from the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. And this issue of lowering the voting age really does speak to the position of children and young people in our society, but very, very clearly about, um, you know, our perceptions about them, but also um, the fact that they very, we want to action their participation rights and we should want to action those. And this would be one step forward in doing so. Um, and But it's only one step um, there are many, many more um, steps that we need to take, uh, but we really need, do need to be putting it on the agenda to actually domestically embed rights into our frameworks um, in all states and territories that every decision that is made um, you know, has children's rights at the forefront. Rob, can I invite you to have a last word on this? Sure. I I think Sharon elegantly and eloquently summarised what the current status quo looks like. Uh, It was apparent, particularly in the last two years of COVID, that among the groups most invidiously affected by lockdowns and other policies were, were children and young people. And it took some while, I think, for spokespeople like Patrick McGorry, for example, to highlight the horrific effects on young people's mental health of uh, the lockdowns, the school closures and all the rest of it. And uh, then a a bit later, people worked out, of course, that one of the problems was that young people had never been engaged in or asked to take part in any of the policymaking processes that were being developed to deal with COVID. So I think that that norm uh, is there. 
uh, and I think uh, Faith's proposition is equally important. I well remember uh, a visit in uh, mid-2015 to a newly elected or appointed Minister for Youth Affairs in Victoria, and uh, I made the case uh, and put it to her directly that Victoria should simply introduce uh, the United Nations Conventions on the Right of the Child, Rights of the Child, as domestic legislation. And I can say only that a look of absolute horror passed across that face. It went a pale shade, uh, a shade paler than white, uh, and there was a sort of muttered, oh, oh, that could never happen. And I understood well why, because uh, in those jurisdictions, for example, in Northern Europe that have done that, have embedded UNCROC as part of domestic legislation, you actually get an effective regime uh, in which young people, children and young people, are taken seriously and that child-centred view becomes increasingly normal. Um, this is the big problem, and it's a bigger problem than the voting uh, age of uh, being reduced to 16 can address, but it is a sign of the problem we face that uh, young people are among the last of the great groups of people to whom all sorts of very bad things can be done, which include speaking about them in their presence, uh, punishing them without, uh, 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 with no, uh, with no uh, sanctions, uh, fantasising about them wildly and denying them systematically most of the important rights. The, the sad state of affairs in this country is that we have very weak protection of rights, both of ordinary other older people or children and young people. And that seems to me to be yet another point for political uh, action uh, and investigation and conversation in the coming years. We really do need to do better um, and young people really are uh, at the forefront of those groups that are most normalised to be uh, people that you can act in a prejudicial way. Think about the current debates about uh, the religious uh, freedoms legislation. Um, again, that goes on with uh, complete uh, unwillingness to engage young people who might be affected by some of the less attractive features of this proposed bill. So I think we're, we are facing uh, a larger problem, but I hope that the ACT uh, and the review process that it's going through at the moment will find uh, favourably, uh, uh, find uh, uh, in favour of the proposition that lowering the voting age to 16 is a very modest but uh, long overdue step in the right direction. Rob, that was a, a fantastic piece of analysis um, to finish this excellent conversation on. Um, in some ways, the, the issues that you, you raised then and that we've talked about throughout this conversation are rather depressing, but they're also very exciting. One of the things that we want to do in the podcast across this year is think about policy for a better future. And this conversation, I think, gives us some really powerful ideas about how we can do that. And what's happening in the ACT at the moment provides us perhaps with the potential for one small step forward. So I think this conversation has been a wonderful way to start the year because it does give us ideas for a better future and how we can build a far more inclusive society. So Faith Gordon, Rob Watts, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. And I enjoyed it enormously too. Sharon, that was a fabulous conversation to start the year, uh, bringing together the themes that we're so interested in about representation and democracy and how to get people engaged in the process, how important it is to listen to, to diverse voices. And I'm struck drawing on conversations that we have had previously on the rights of children and, and on the way in which we, we listen to them in our society. What an extraordinary opportunity this potential change in legislation in the ACT might be for us to, to really engage in that young voice, a voice which is so powerful, particularly in the climate movement. Um, so I'm, I'm really inspired by the conversation listening to the three of you talk about the, the potential advantages of seeing uh, the voting age lowered to 16. I can't wait to talk to my children about this tonight. I think it is a conversation that we all should be having with our children because it is such an important one and it's a conversation that children have to be centrally engaged in. Uh, Robin and Faith are fantastic scholars. They're, they're people that I deeply admire uh, for the research that they do and, and that was an amazing conversation. And like you, I kept thinking about all of the other things that this connects to. You know, I think if, if people see the ACT, a fairly small jurisdiction in Australia, is making what appears to be a fairly small change around voting age, it might not appear to be a big issue. But I think this is one of those potential turning points 
in the way we think about our democracy, the way we think about political and social inclusion, um, and the way we think about children. You know, Rob's final comments were so powerful about the ways in which we treat children that would not be acceptable at all if we were to treat other groups in society in that way. And so I, I think, to me, this conversation feels like it could be the beginning of something very important. And I think this initiative that's being debated in the ACT Legislative Assembly could be the beginning of something very important in this country. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, the opportunity here to really think about how we engage in the democratic process, it's again, it's going to be a theme that I think we'll, we'll touch on many times over the course of this year and reflect on today's conversation. And for people who want to to know more about that submission, we'll put a link to it in our show notes for today. Um, and people may also be interested in looking at the other submissions that were, were put forward as part of this inquiry that the ACT government's holding. Absolutely. So thank you, listeners, for joining us on our first episode of 2022. We're so excited to be back recording. We've got lots of episodes and mini-series ideas for this year, but we'd also really love to hear from you about what policy issues you'd like us to discuss. You can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We have a Facebook group, which is called Policy Forum Pod. You type that into the search bar and you'll find us. And there's a great set of discussions that occur on that platform. We'd love you to subscribe to the podcast and particularly leave us a review on your pod platform of choice. And we will, of course, be back next week. So bye-bye for now from Anna Hunter. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.